Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. For more information, visit emmyusa.com. This week on Meat and 3, we're getting semantic to understand the deeper meaning behind some of the foods we love. First, we'll look at the big debate happening around the word milk. Who the hell are you to tell me what is the name of my product and my landscape and everything we've cared about when, you know, you don't have anything invested in except to put out a little money to buy it? (laughs) It's our entire life. Then we get the lowdown on the language of cider. So the first thing that's really confusing about dryness is that it has nothing to do with how something actually feels in your mouth. And finally, we get our fill of tiki talk. You don't walk into a tiki bar and be like, oh yeah, this is what Polynesia is probably like. Like, it's, it's supposed to be like fantasy and stuff. That's the hard part. It's so easy to do tiki bad, and that's where it gets a bad name. Tune into this week's episode of Meat and 3. That's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello and welcome to Why Food, a podcast about entrepreneurs, innovators, career changers, and all of the interesting people who make the food world interesting. I'm your lone co-host this week, Ethan Frisch, and Jenny is prepping for a big event tomorrow and Saturday, and so she unfortunately is not able to join us this week, so I'm on my own. I'm flying solo, but we have an awesome guest for you, someone who I worked with in a restaurant kitchen a long time ago, and I'm sort of recently reconnected with, and I'm really happy you could join us, Zia Sheikh, who's, the, uh, who's a, a longtime chef, but more recently the founder and CEO of an organization called Restaurants After Hours, supporting restaurant workers with mental health issues. So Zia, thanks for joining us. Thank you for very much for having me. Um, tell us about your, your career in kitchens. What did you do? Where did you work? How did you get into it? So I got into it because uh, it's always been a passion of mine. Uh, I've uh, started cooking when I was 10 years old, and it was after it was actually during college that I decided to just make this a career and, and do this for the rest of my life, and that's how I kind of fell into it. I, uh, I started off um, working in New York, then I ventured out to New Jersey, to Brooklyn. I've worked in Chicago, Philadelphia, but uh, New York brought me back. Uh, I've worked in um, you know, a multitude of different kitchens. I've been doing this for about 16 years now, but... Uh, yeah, now, now I'm here doing this. Uh, I started up this organization for mental health in the, in the restaurant industry, and hopefully I'll be able to help out a couple of people. Yeah. Um, what kinds of kitchens did you work in? What was the style of cooking that you that you got into? How did you... Uh... I've always wanted to do a little bit of everything. Uh, so I actually, I spent like a year and a half doing uh, breakfast cooking. I've uh, worked in fine dining. Breakfast worked... cooking is the, the, the dungeon of, <laughs> of kitchens. The... Yeah, a lot of people say that, but I actually had a lot of fun. Oh, know? yeah? And I actually learned a lot of skills uh, doing that. Um, what are what are some of your breakfast skills? How should we all be scrambling eggs? What do we what do we not know about breakfast cooking? One thing that everybody should know about breakfast, especially if you're going to become a breakfast cook, is that everyone eats their eggs differently. So you really learn how to cook directly for guests and exactly like how they want things done. Because if they don't like, if if anything's just like a slad temperature off, it's just going to come right back to you. How so, do you like your eggs? I like them anyway. I, I love eggs. You know, like I'm I'm kind of like a almost like Wally Dufresne. I'll, I'll eat eggs in any, anyway. <laughs> But uh, yeah, like I did breakfast cooking for a year and a half. I worked in fine dining. I've worked in casual. I've worked in um, takeout, I've banquets, hotels, everything. I wanted to be uh, I wanted to be kind of all over the industry to learn it, and uh, that way I could just look back and just be like, hey, I've done this before, you know, and and kind of pretend, like make my cooking that way. Yeah. 
we worked together. I mean, you were my boss at Tabla. Yeah, I, had, uh, <laughs> I don't remember that, honestly. Yeah, it was, it was 2009, <laughs> yeah, maybe? Yeah, it was a very long time ago. That 10? Was 10 years ago, yeah. And I was, uh, I think, not even a blip on your radar, except you did name, it was either a pig or a goat after. You had a whole, <laughs> you remember there was this whole thing at Tabla, that the animals, the whole animals that would come into the kitchen yeah. would, would get named after one of the new cooks. I think I think our first conversation. Did we do that? I don't remember that. Honestly. Was you yeah. decided to name a suckling pig after me, and, oh, that's and great. it was like written on the oh, on the fantastic. sheet tray yeah. next to the the pig's head and the ears <laughs> and the whatever other parts we had butchered it down into. You're like this this is Ethan's head, and it's going to go into a <laughs> some head cheese. I don't know whatever we were doing with the pig's head. Um, oh, that's great. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, getting into cooking, you went to college to be an engineer, and then yes. changed your mind. Tell us. Yeah, so us like I story. went to college for engineering. I was uh, kind of, um, I was going through the path of, of following some type of science. My parents were always pushing me to become like a doctor, a lawyer, engineer, or, you know, like one of those top fields. And uh, my passion has always been cooking. Cooking has always been a part of me. And I always use cooking as a way to kind of escape. It was almost like a therapeutic process for me. And when I got to college, I realized that I just did not find any of the subjects interesting. I, I couldn't sit there and just be like, hey, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And I had started cooking for friends in the dorm. I started cooking for all, all the people around me. And, you know, someone had approached me and was just kind of like, hey, this is what you should be doing for the rest of your life. And I gave it some thought and I was like, yeah, actually, that's what I want to do. So I ended up dropping out of college and going to, going to culinary school. And then I never looked back. What were some of the what were some of your dorm room dishes? What, what, did, what did you make that if, if somebody tasted this dish and said yeah. you should be a professional cook? What was that dish? I mean, like back then, it was just like I, I, I knew how to clean chicken. So I did a lot of chicken around um, around the dorm. Uh, I used like, you know, bottled marinades, uh, you know, whatever vegetable I can get my hands on and just kind of cut it and cook it like that. Uh, I learned how to use the microwave effectively, you know, because that's all we had. <laughs> um, the George Foreman grill, things like that. But people noticed that like it was it was cooking that made me happy, you know, and it was um, it was a way for me to just kind of explore this, you know, feeling inside myself. And that's how it, it all started. Um, was the decision to go to culinary school a difficult one? How did you how did you decide to do that? It was actually it was something that just kind of came to me and I was just like, you know, hey, this is what I want to do and this is what I'm going to pursue. It was uh, it was a very easy decision to make. It wasn't welcomed so well because back then people really didn't think too highly of chefs. They uh, they were just kind of, you know, their image of chefs. It was, you know, people that cooked at, uh, you know, like takeout counters or whatever. And like, you know, this greasy guy that's always just behind the stoves and always had stains on him and things like that. So no one really thought of it as, as kind of like an elite career. So when I had made the decision to do this for the rest of my life, a lot of people looked at me were just kind of like, you know, is this really what you want to do? And I was just like, yes, this is what I want to do. So in the beginning, it was um, it was met with a lot of hardship. But then over a couple of years, people started to open their eyes to it and just be like, hey, you know, this is actually really great. Were you aware of, of I don't know, fine dining of the career opportunities at that level of the industry? Was that was that an ambition of yours or was that something you kind of fell into or came upon later? Uh, that was actually an ambition of mine. I, I wanted to work with some of the greatest chefs out there. Uh, while I was in culinary school, I started researching uh, names like R Repair and, and Von Gericht and, and um, you know, Audria. And like, these are all the people that you see in the cookbooks that um, really kind of started off my career. Uh, and it was a year out of culinary school. I got I had a chance to work with Grant Atkins at Alinea uh, and just do like a trail for like a week. But, um, you know, those are the things that kind of excited me. Like I, I followed... Um, I followed those chefs and I wanted to do what they did. But then I realized what was actually best for me was to learn every aspect of the industry and not just do fine dining. So 
even though I followed the trail of fine dining, I, I went into casual, I went to hotels, I went to banquets, and more so than anything, I found out that there are different chefs that also went into these different uh, uh, types of the industry, so to speak. So if anybody's willing to take you under their wing and teach you, that's really the more important thing. What were some of the other lessons that you learned early on, either in culinary school or, or in the first jobs that you had about about the way that kitchens ran, about uh, particular techniques? It really is an endurance run. You know, like you are going to be putting in a lot of long hours. Uh, you're going to be sacrificing a lot in terms of your social life, in terms of family life. Um, and you're really not going to have that in the beginning. You know, and there's a lot of people that get into this industry now that don't expect that. But um, just understand that, you know, this is going to take a lot out of you. And, you know, for the first couple of years, you just kind of have to put your head down and learn the industry and yeah. learn um, the craft of it before advancing to the next level. Yeah. One of the things that, that surprised me in my first kitchen job, I guess, but was that really cooking is, is essentially a high skill manufacturing job, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. You're, it's not creative. You're making something that somebody mm -hmm. else created. You're making it uh, identically every time, a mm -hmm. hundred times a night. It's not about, it's not about. Uh, your own expression on the mm -hmm. plate. It's about uh, bringing somebody else's vision to light. And I think that's something that people don't often realize about professional kitchens yeah. is that it's really, it's manufacturing. And obviously there's there's skills and techniques and ways that you get to be really good at it. I don't say that to to diminish it or, or to diminish the value of it, but but I think there's a, a dissonance sometimes with what people expect they're going to be doing. Yeah, but like these are the reasons why we have to talk about it. You yeah. know, like people have like the expectations, but nobody has really opened up about what the reality actually is, you know, and that's why uh, we need to talk about this and, and bring issues to these kinds of subjects, whether it be repetition in the kitchen or mental health or anything like that. Um, the more we talk about it, the more people will be aware. And once we set up expectations, they'll be able to follow through. Yeah. Um, what were the what was the culture in those kitchens like the first places that you worked what the, did it the feel first like places i've worked uh, a lot of it ha was very positive it was actually my very first uh restaurant job um where i had a very 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 bad experience where they were late on my paycheck for a couple weeks so <clears throat> this was my first job working in the city and it kind of prevented me from staying in the city after that uh i had actually uh, i was a little bit scarred from that and had moved out to jersey and decided to work in hotels and get away from private restaurants for a while and I did that for two years before actually coming back into restaurants. So um, besides that one job, everything else was actually very positive. Uh, I had a couple of chefs that, again, took me under their wings that wanted to teach me, that uh, taught me the ropes of everything. And I was able to gather my skills that way before coming back into the city. What, what advice do you give to people now who are interested in, in cooking for a living, interested in working in restaurants? What do you tell them? Things are very different now. Uh, so honestly, it's, it's very hard to say what I went through versus what they're actually seeing now. Like for me back then, it was just, it was a feeling that I had of, of cooking at home and, and wanting to do this for the rest of my life. Now so, it's more so on social media. People see pictures, people want to do it. And, you know, they don't realize that, you know, it's a very hands-on grueling job that um, that you do have to sacrifice a lot for. And just because you went to culinary school doesn't mean you're going to be a chef, doesn't mean you're going to be creative. You do need to learn the craft of everything before actually moving into this. Yeah. I think another thing that people often don't realize about kitchens and kitchen cultures is that um, kitchens have, have always been sort of a refuge for people who felt like they didn't fit in elsewhere. No. Um, uh, not having the customer-facing role, mm -hmm. being a cook, uh, a level of intensity that, that kitchens create and, and support, um, and then also a, a potentially toxic environment, substance abuse, 
uh, mental health issues, lots of lots of other mm-hmm. unhealthy behaviors that that go hand in hand with kitchen work, um, yeah. which is now something that you've uh, decided to focus on full I've, time I, because I've experienced it. So tell yeah. us tell us yeah. about that experience. So when I had gotten into this industry, uh, I was. Um, I had started drinking uh, already and, and dealing with substances and then having that kind of lifestyle. So when I got into cooking and I realized that there's like this almost this party atmosphere that kind of ties into it, yeah. I fed into that, you know, and for me, it was uh, working the long hours. And then afterwards, I would almost do it in secret, really, just um, just start to binge drink and, and start to abuse substances and then go right back to work. And for me, it was uh, for 10 to 12 years, I, I, I did this as a lifestyle, you know, and we, you know, back then we almost wore it as badges of honor. Like, you know, we, we said that, you know, the, the harder that you're going to party, the more, the harder that you're going to work. Like, you know, this is what it takes to be a chef. And there's still a lot of people out there that, that think like this, but, uh, you know, now that we're bringing a lot more awareness to these issues and realizing that, Hey, this is a problem. This is not the way you should be living your life. A lot of people are now coming, starting to come forward and talk about this kind of stuff. So, um, the reason why, the whole reason why I set up restaurant after hours in this organization is to provide a space for people to feel comfortable to come forward and say that, you know, if this is not the lifestyle that you want to do, you know, we're here to provide you resources on how to help you through that process. What was the the moment when you realized that you had to, you had to change, you had the behavior that you'd been acting the way that you'd been acting for so, for so long? Uh, I've been, um, I've been clean and sober now for three and a half years. Congratulations. And, uh, thank you. So, Three and a half years ago, what ended up happening was it was after a night of binge drinking that I had um, the next morning I had woken up and realized that I'd almost killed myself the night before. And it was a, you know, it was an accident. It was um, I was at a bar, you know, having a couple of drinks and this was the middle of July. But for some reason, I felt very cold. So I had gone out to my car and um, in an effort to warm up, I blasted the heat and I passed out, you know, and in the morning I woke up in the car. Uh, the windows were down. The seat was reclined. My keys were on the passenger seat. Somebody had found me, and like it was come into your car and like just come into my car and you know, God knows what was going through their head. But someone had found me, and I still don't know who this was. And if you're listening, for if you're out there and listening, thank you very much. But um, yeah, someone had found me in that state. I don't know what was going through their heads, but I woke up in the morning and realized, hey, something needs to change here, uh, because that was um, that was the traumatic moment that I needed to realize that I needed to do something to change. So, uh, so what did you do? So I had started the process of, um, I, you know, like I, I didn't quit drinking immediately, but uh, I started the process of kind of lessening the alcohol and, and not going out as much. Uh, I was at points where I would take Magnum bottles of alcohol and, and drink them in a night, and. Now, um, now I, I don't even have a desire to drink at all. You know, I, I haven't had a sip of alcohol in, in months, and it, that actually feels good. So, like, it's 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 a long process, you know. But if you're willing to do it and work, kind of work towards it, um, then that's what you need to do. Like for me, it was um, focusing more so on things that were important to me and realizing that I don't want to go through that path anymore. Do you think there's something about restaurants that either attract or or create a kind of culture that? that encourages a lot of drinking, a lot of substance abuse. Yeah. And like the restaurant culture, the restaurant business model kind of lends itself to it because you're working, um, let's, let's take a dinner shift, for example, you're working, um, six to eight hours. And then afterwards what's open, you know, the, the only thing that's open is your neighbor, your uh, local watering hole. So everybody goes out there and it's almost like a team building thing. They go out and have a drink and, and, um, de-stress a little bit. But there are some people that kind of feed into that lifestyle and it becomes a problem and they'll be drinking until like uh, in the morning hours, not working again until 
three o'clock, four o'clock in the afternoon, and uh, you know they'll sleep through the morning and then go right back to work. So it uh, it lends itself to like this party hard lifestyle throughout the night, and uh, you know alcohol is available everywhere. You know, like at your at the place that you work at, you know, at the place where it is, like wherever you go after work, you know, things like that. So there's a bottle of wine on your station. There's a bottle of wine on your station, with you know, it. things yeah. like that. And, um, yeah, it, it's everywhere, you know? And so it's, it, it's very hard to say, Hey, you know what? Um, I'm not going to take a drink of this or I'm, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, take part in this, you know, cause it, it is, it's a lifestyle that we encourage almost. Yeah. Um, is there something about restaurants that, uh, that, that creates that or, or is that a, a culture that's been imposed on restaurants because of the convenience? It's a culture that has been imposed onto restaurants, um, but there's also there's um, this aspect of restaurants where, you know, it, it is a very high stress industry, you know, and everybody deals with stress very differently. For me, I had turned to alcohol to kind of de-stress, you know, all throughout all those years. But um, there's a lot of people that uh, don't realize how much stress actually goes into running a restaurant, and that that goes for any business really. But, you know, restaurants in particular, I but think. restaurants in particular, just because you're you're in the customer eye, you know, so it's not just um, dealing with your coworkers or dealing with supervisors. You also have to deal with customers and purveyors and then investors. And there's all these people that are looking at you to stay positive and, and bring in money. And uh, it, it's a lot of stress from a lot of different angles. So um, for some people, they they turn to drinking to to numb that. Did you find that that your uh, relationship with alcohol changed over the course of your career as you moved up the ranks and and became a manager and a chef de cuisine. How did that? How did how did alcohol? Interact I don't know if it that? if it had so much to deal with the ranks, uh, but it, it definitely um, the more the more so I moved forward, the more so I realized that I could do this in secret and nobody would know. Uh, there were instances where I would work twelve hours a day and then go to the bar and then stay out till four o'clock in the morning drinking and then t- have. Um, sleep for like an hour and go right back to work and nobody knew, you know, and I lived so far away from those that were close to me that nobody realized that I was, I had this problem and that I was kind of going through this and I masked it very well with work and just kind of keeping my head down and, and, and keep me moving forward. So it was actually, I feel actually the more, um, I moved up in the industry and the more responsibilities I had on myself, that's actually when it started to come out a little bit. Um, because there came a point where I just, I couldn't hold everything around me. So, if anything, it was actually easier when I was a cook, and um, it became a little bit harder when I was uh, when I became a chef. Were your friends and, and family aware of it? Were they involved? Those that were closest to me realized that I was starting to do things out of character, that I was uh, not really myself, and I was not really sleeping right, not really eating right. Um, you know, I had put on a lot of weight, and it was uh, the physical aspects of it were starting to show, and... Uh, you know, people started to approach me and were just kind of like, hey, something's going on here. And but it was more so self-realization that I realized, that, hey, you know what, I'm I'm turning into a completely different person than who I actually am on the inside. So it was like this ongoing battle of uh, being this person that everyone almost expected me to be and who I actually am on the inside and what makes me happy. And I realized that um, I didn't want to turn into a person that I hated almost. So um, I took a step back and, and realized that I needed to take some time off and go to therapy. And long-term therapy actually worked for me. Uh, it is working right now. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm much more positive aspect. What were some of the, the, I don't know, the warning signs for you, the behaviors that, that made you realize that you weren't going in a direction that you were happy about? It was, uh, it was a lot of um, 
it was almost like an emotional roller coaster. You know, it was it was a lot of ups and downs. Uh, so I would be going to work and um, yeah, it would just be oh, man. <laughs> um, a lot of almost like anger outbursts, honestly. You know, it was it, the stress was getting to me on every aspect, and not even just the outbursts. It was also the um, the physical aspects of everything. Like I was just tired on a daily basis. I was treating people like crap, and I hated that. I hated myself for that. I would go home every single night and and just and just be completely mad at myself for the way I acted and the what I had to do um, in what I thought would be helping people out was actually um, deterring them from staying in this industry. So I, I just, I, I hated myself on a daily basis for that. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I know about you from having worked for you, but also yeah. from conversations we've had was, is how seriously you take the, the teaching process, the, mm -hmm. the manager as mentor, as teacher, as uh, cheerleader, supporter, um, both for, you know, for the efficiency of running a restaurant, it runs better when people are happy and all pointing in the same direction. But I think also, on an emotional level that th those seem to be things that matter to you. Yep. Um, but then in an industry that historically ha those things are not priorities, the chef, you know, the, the classic chef archetype is yelling and cursing and ordering people around. And the mm -hmm. only acceptable response is yes, chef, there's no discussion. There's uh, right. It's, it's a completely top down hierarchy. Mm -hmm. um, did you, did you feel a tension earlier in your career between those two things, between sort of the expectation of the, the what a chef should be like and and the way that you wanted to be a chef? Well, like I always wanted to be, um, I always wanted to tell people that like, you know, like I'm, I'm here to teach you. Like anything that I've learned throughout this my, my entire career, I want to show you and I want to teach you. Um, in terms of just, you know, the yes chef atmosphere or anything like that, I actually, like those who have worked with me, I even tell them straight out, don't call me chef. I hate being called chef. You know, call me Zia. You know, it's much more personal that way. And, you know, like I'm here, like even though I'm, I'm here as your manager or as your leader, um, more than anything, I'm, I'm working by you. Like I'm working with you. Uh, and I, I want to, you, I want you to grow, you know, so there have been aspects where, um, you know, like there, there was always going to be instances where you're just too busy to teach people. But at the same time, at the end of the day, you want to be able to take everything that you've learned and pass it on to somebody else. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back in two minutes. Stay tuned. Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. Since the early 1900s, Emmy has been a passionate supporter of farmers, cheesemakers, and family tradition. They believe in sustainable agriculture and respect for the people, land, and animals that make their business possible. Remaining dedicated to tradition, they strive to lead the industry in innovation, ensuring they bring you only the highest quality, best tasting cheese from Switzerland. Emmy is best known for importing more than 80% of Swiss Gruyere into the United States, but that's not to overshadow their other specialty cheeses, including Kottbalk Cave-Age cheeses, Appenzeller, Tete de Moine, and traditional Emmentaler. For more information, visit emmyusa.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Sari Kamen. And I'm Leah Kurtz. And together we host Food Without Borders here on HRN. 
Immigrants make our food system vibrant, diverse, and delicious. Each week, we invite a guest to talk about how food connects them to their past as we explore what it's like to be an immigrant in the U.S. today. You can find Food Without Borders wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. And we're back. We're talking this week with Zia Sheikh, who is a chef and the founder and CEO of an organization called Restaurants After Hours. Uh, we were just in the first half of the show talking about Zia's personal struggles with, with mental health issues and, and in the kitchen and out of the kitchen and how, how that uh, created a culture that made it very difficult to address. But now, Zia, you've started a, an organization to help other, other restaurant workers, uh, kitchen, front of house, mm-hmm. hospitality industry across the board, help people address some of those issues themselves. Tell us about, tell us about the organization and, and what, what's happening. So the organization, uh, it's still very young. Uh, I launched it uh, just a few months ago. And the aim for it is to provide accessible counseling to hospitality workers. I've realized uh, more so than anything with, through my own story is that um, you know, having depression, having anxiety throughout my life, uh, not, really realize, not really knowing how to deal with the stresses around me, you know, it took a toll on me. And now, so um, I want to be able to provide resources for people that need it more than anything, you know, and, and to tell them that, you know, it, it, it is okay to come forward and talk about um, emotional problems. And, and um, if you need help, like we're here for you, you know, a lot of people are still scared to do that, you know, and a lot of people are scared to come forward about how they're going to be viewed or how they're going to be judged, you know, by others around me. But I, I know at least for my own personal experience so far that it, everything has been very positive so far since I've told everybody that, um, you know, I do have a problem and I'm willing to change and um, I'm willing to move forward. So um, what were those conversations like? How did people respond when you when you opened up to them? It, it was very scary. You know, like you, you spent so many years closing yourself off from people that now you're letting them in one by one into your world and how you think and how um, how you live your life. And, and, you know, again, for at least for me, I spent so many years doing this in secret that it was hard to uh, tell people like, you know, hey, this is who I actually am and, and what I've been doing. And a lot of people, you know, they're still, they're still shocked by it, you know? Uh, a lot of people have been very open about it um, and just say like, you know, anything that I can do for you, I'll, I'll do for you. But uh, it, it did come as a shock to a lot of people, but it, uh, for the most part, it's been very positive. You know, like anybody, everybody out there is just like willing to help me through my recovery and, and you know, to see the other side of things. And trying to solve these problems in an industry that a sort of encourages them in a lot of ways that we, we talked about, but then B uh, also ha- has this secrecy. Uh, it's pretty easy to to show up and cook. If I mean, not, uh, easy is maybe the wrong word, but but it's possible to live the kind of double life that you were talking about. So you're dealing with kind of, as far as I can see, two major challenges. One is the the celebration of toughness, of of drinking, of you know being able to work all day and drink all night, and uh, this ability to do that in secret, how do you how do you solve that problem? How how are you and and restaurant after hours sort of aiming to address those? More than anything, I want people to realize that you don't need you don't necessarily have to live this lifestyle if you don't want to. You know, uh, anybody that that is willing to change, they have to know that for themselves. And for me, I thought that having this lifestyle of having this party lifestyle would help me out as a chef because. Again, you know, like w- with 
wearing these things like badges of honor, like I wanted to say like, you know, hey, this is the life that I've had. This is what I've gone through. And, you know, I'm more than anything, I'm a badass. Like I, I that was the lifestyle that I wanted. But, um, you know, now looking back on it, I'm just like, you know, really, what was the point? You know, like there's there's nothing out there that about my past history with drinking that really is going to inspire anybody. You know, like, what am I going to tell them? Like, oh, if you do this for 10 years, your your health is going to be bad. You know, like, great. Like, you know, like, how is that going to motivate you as a cook? So um, I, more than anything, I, I, I want to tell people like, you know, hey, this is what I did. This is what I, I'm doing now. But um, there is a different way to do this. You know, the, you don't necessarily have to have that kind of lifestyle to be in this industry. What would you say to your your younger self if you came across if you were you were able to you know parachute back ten years ago and uh, ten years ago I, I would just tell my younger self um, just to be more careful uh, because like you know these things will catch up to you. Uh, you're you know, we're, we're, we are talking about your health here, you know, and uh, you, you want to be able to be in this industry for a very long time and you don't want to burn out. And that's essentially what happened. Like I, I burned out because of, you know, not being able to talk openly about this and not going up to somebody and just being like, hey, you know, I have a problem or I, I have all these things that I need to kind of work through, you know, and going back to my younger self, I would seek out the, these resources that I'm hopefully providing and uh, I would use them. So tell us about some of those resources. What are the, I mean, Restaurant Without After Hours is, has only been around for a few months. So yes. recognizing that it's still very early days, but what are what are the first steps that you're taking so far? So uh, right now, I'm I currently am in long term therapy, uh, and therapy is something that has been working for me. But it, again, like I do want to stress that um, therapy does not work for everybody. You need to find what works for you. Uh, therapy again has worked for me and I'm, wor I'm focusing more so on exercising and wellness um, and just being a little bit more active uh, and as far as uh, far as my own thoughts like I'm thinking a lot more clearly I'm, I'm, I'm doing a lot better and again like I don't even have a desire to drink right now so um, it has been helping me but in terms of restaurant after hours I'm, I'm helping to provide the resources that are already in place out there uh, a lot of people don't know this. New York City actually has a 24-7 mental health hotline that you can talk, text, or chat anytime. Uh, there's also um, organizations out there that are dedicated to mental health uh, that you can reach out to and, and talk to. And um, they provide support groups and, and um, other resources that you can look into. Uh, everything. And uh, I'm also focusing on a public education program right now called Mental, sorry, called mental Health First Aid. And it's a free public education program where you can learn the symptoms of mental illness. And um, more so than anything, it, it teaches you how to approach somebody that's dealing with a problem and, and talk to them and listen non-judgmentally non about it. So again, it's called Mental Health First Aid. That's, a, that's the public education program that I'm pushing. And I'm trying to go from restaurant to restaurant and, and just tell them like, hey, this is what, um, this, these are the things that you guys need, can focus on. To help out people, and you've also uh, decided, I guess, to focus on on managers as as the key to this, right? Yeah, like, like it, a lot of people that I've talked to so far, um, it's been uh, like, oh, I tried to approach my manager; they didn't know how to deal with this, or you know, my manager was not very sympathetic about this. But you know, people forget that managers are people too, you know. And more than anything, it's it's just another skill set that they need to learn. Of you know, it, it's it's all education. It's it's not about pressure; it's about educating them as well. So um, if we can um, educate the managers on, on how to deal with this, you know, they'll be able to strengthen their teams that way. What, uh, what can managers be doing better or what should managers be doing, not just in response to a crisis, but in the day to day of managing a team that might where there might be members who are struggling with mental health issues? There, um, 
it, it's kind of like a two-way process, you know, like uh, like managers, you know, like over years, they'll kind of come into their own management style uh, and they'll know how to, to talk to people and to deal with people and get the most out of the teams. But if they don't include mental illness in their own programs or of, you know, if they don't know how to, to approach these situations, then um, it just, like, it, you're not really going to have a strong team that way, you know, like there is always going to be, um, you know, one out of every four people that are dealing with something that you're not going to know how to talk about or not know how to motivate them or um, not know how to push them forward. And probably even more than one in four in restaurants. If it's one in four in the yeah, mental, general like, population. Yeah, mental, like, so the... Um, the National Alliance of Mental Illness, uh, NAMI, has said that one in four Americans deal with mental illness, but uh, mental health experts have said that in, in terms of the restaurant industry, it could be as high as one in three or one in two, even, yeah. you know, so um, there's a lot of people out there that deal with this. And the, the stigma against it in the restaurant industry in particular, uh, in people in other industries might struggle with it, but yeah. have easier ways to get health, uh, to get support. Um, I actually don't even want to say that it's easier. You know, there, there's stigma everywhere. You yeah. know, a lot of people don't talk about this yet. You know, like there are there are programs out there where they're starting to teach high school children um, about mental illness. But in terms of, you know, a, a lot of people that are older, they don't talk about this kind of stuff. And even though um, I'm out there and I'm talking to people about mental illness, there are a lot of people that have laughed me off or there are a lot of people that have brushed me off and said, you know, this is not important or, you know, like th really this is what you're doing with the rest of your life. And there is a lot of stigma out there, you know, that uh, they don't think that this is important or, you know, it, uh, unless you're living through it, you know, you're not really going to understand it. And um, I understand that aspect of it, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. You know, how do you see the work that you're doing uh, connected to the, the Me Too movement, especially in restaurants? There have been some very high profile people in the restaurant industry mm -hmm. who have stepped away from their restaurants, who've uh, restaurants have had to close um, because things that people a lot of people in the industry knew but those things became public in terms of the way that men were treating women um d how do you see that connected to the work that you're doing so in terms of the me too movement you know when the me too movement came about i went online one day and then all of a sudden i started reading all these stories about not even just women like you know just men coming forward and just saying like you know hey this is something that i went through this is an incident that caused me trauma or caused me anxiety and there are so many people that were taking these issues and just living in secret really and mental illness is no different you know like uh, for me my depression i never talked openly about it you know and there's instances that caused me trauma that i never came forward about so more than anything it connected a lot of people and saying like you know hey i'm not alone in this and um if i come forward with my story people are going to know that they're not alone or i'm not alone and it almost created like this this community of, of people just holding each other up and, and being there for each other and that's essentially what Restaurant After Hours is trying to do now. Like, we're, I'm, I'm trying to create this community of people just coming, kind of coming together and just being like, hey, you're not alone in this. I'm going through this. There's a lot of other people that are going through this, and uh, we're here to support each other. Yeah. We're now uh, almost a year from Bourdain, Anthony Bourdain's suicide, which yeah. I think for a lot of people was a, uh, a moment of recognition. Uh, someone who had spoken very publicly about his substance abuse issues, about his mental health issues more broadly, and then someone who was, you know, perceived at least from the outside to be at the height of his career, um, would commit suicide. Mm -hmm. um, uh, seems like it focused a lot of attention on the industry that he had worked in his whole life, and obviously was very closely associated with. Have you seen? I guess how did how did you personally respond to to the news of his suicide, and how did have you seen a, a ripple effect throughout the industry in your in your work? 
when uh, when I woke up the morning of June eighth and I saw the news that Anthony Bourdain had committed suicide, I was very sad about it. But what Anthony Bourdain's suicide has now brought upon the general public is that you know this does affect anybody. You know, like you don't need to be or you can be anybody out there. You know, at the height of your career or. Um, you know, just having this this thing in secret and, and not real and not being able to be open about it about the problems that you're going through, you know, like looking at back on his interviews and and all the things that he's he's done, you know, there are instances where he'll he'll show like this glimpse of of like this of his life where um, you'll be like, oh, you know what, maybe he did have a problem, but you know, for the general public watching him on television and like that, you don't you don't really know, and that's the thing about this is that like you know unless we're open to talking about this kind of stuff, you know. Like what happened with Anthony Bourdain is like an incredibly sad story, you know. Like he was, he touched so many people in a positive way, and then all of a sudden was just kind of like, hey, you know what, I, I I can't do this anymore, and decided to to hang himself. And it's a very sad thing, you know. It's a very sad thing that to know that he couldn't be open about it, and we couldn't be there to support him like the way he he um, supported us throughout our lives. Have you seen a, a response within the industry, a, more of a recognition of the importance of addressing mental health, or? Yeah, like it's uh, like since then, um, sadly, it, you know, what came about from his suicide was a lot more people started talking about this now, uh, which is both a good and a bad thing. It, like it, it sucks that it sucks that we had to go through the suicide of Anthony Bourdain to talk about it, but um, at least there is some positive coming from it, and you know, people are talking more openly about it, and. Um, you know, starting to address this problem and, and, and realizing, hey, you know what, this is something that does affect a lot of people and, you know, we don't want people ending up like Bourdain and it still happens on a weekly basis. I'm, I'm hearing about a chef that's committing, committing suicide. And, uh, you know, it's if, if there's anything that we can do to prevent that, then let's do that. Yeah. There's a, a Facebook group called Chefs with Issues, yes. which I'm a member of. Yes. Uh, and I've been really, you know, the internet is generally a pretty shitty place mm -hmm. to be. People are not nice to each other. They're not supportive. Uh, they're looking for any chance to undermine somebody else's argument. Mm -hmm. But in this Facebook group, and I think for a lot of reasons, partially because of the woman who runs it, a journalist named Kat Kinsman, who's mm -hmm. written pretty extensively about mental health in kitchens, um, it's an incredibly supportive environment. People post really really raw, really intense uh, emotions on in, in this group to a, a group of a, a thousand people who they've ne never met in person. Yep. Uh, and, and the ways that that, that community is supportive, um, it's like overwhelmingly positive, showering that person with love uh, is, really, is really striking. How do you think that can be replicated or are there are there ways to build those kinds of communities beyond that one Facebook group? Well, I can say like, you know, cause I'm a member of that, that group as well. And Kat Kinsman does an amazing job at keeping that group supportive of each other. Like if anybody does say any bad language or is not talking nice to each other, she'll actually, you know, as a moderator, she'll come in and just be like, Hey, stop that. And so she has been doing this incredible job of creating this community where people can talk openly about their issues. And anybody that's there knows that um, we are there to support each other. Like everybody there is incredibly inspirational. Yeah. Um, being able to um, open up and talk about their issues and also the people responding to it and just offering advice and just being like, hey, you know what, you're not, again, you're not alone in this. And uh, I'm gonna be here for you and what, what um, this is how, you know, and, and I'm gonna be able to talk openly about you, openly to you about this. And um, yeah, it's just, it, I have nothing 
but great things to say about it. Yeah. So do you think there are ways to build that kind of community, that kind of support system um, in other formats, not just in that Facebook group, but in person in, in restaurants or in uh, community groups? Or yeah, I mean, like one thing that you have to realize is that, you know, creating a group like that, everybody needs to be un involved and everybody needs to be on the same page about it. Um, you know, everybody that's in that group knows that, you know, they're, they're there to support each other and to listen to each other and, and um, no judgment whatsoever and, and, and talk to everybody. And that's essentially what, like, if you are going to do that on an outside world, then everybody that's there or needs to be on that same page. What are some of the other resources that you found helpful or that you recommend to other people who are, who are looking for support themselves or trying to understand more about this issue? I personally have had um, great success with the Crisis Text Line and NYC Well. Uh, those are the two that I have reached out to when I was having um, bad depression days and I couldn't get out of bed. And uh, talking to a life counselor on, on the other side through text um, actually helped me get out of bed and, and get through moving. Are there, are there other resources, other books that you read or articles or, or people that you recommend that, that our listeners follow? Uh, for me, in terms of like when I was educating myself on mental illness, it was uh, I just spent so much time on the Internet just reading through everything. Uh, there are uh, there are other charities out there. There are other uh, mental health resources out there um, that just post um, all these articles in terms of like you know, depression, anxiety, in terms of uh, eating disorders and and. Um, so many other resources out there, but like I just spent so much time on the internet, really. Yeah, and uh, that uh, mental health first aid uh, mm -hmm. training that you mentioned. How do people sign up for that? Or, or so mental health first aid. You can go to mentalhealthfirstaid.org, and uh, I'm actually um, trying to get my teacher teaching certificate to become an instructor to teach the program. But uh, you can go to mentalhealthfirstaid.org and. Um, they offer it in every major city. You can sign up for it. It's completely free. It takes between eight to 12 hours. And uh, afterwards, they give you a certificate that's good for three years and also a book of mental illness that you can take home with you. And who do you recommend? Everyone. Do that. Everyone. Everyone. <laughs> um, Everyone. Mm -hmm. In the last few minutes of the podcast, we usually switch to a, a lighter. This has been a, a particularly heavy conversation. Usually we talk about entrepreneurship and food, and yeah. this has been a heavier one than usual. But um, yeah, let's ask some some more sure, go some for lighter, it. more fun questions. Yeah, go for it. Uh, what is your favorite vegetable? My favorite vegetable would have to be corn. Corn? Corn, yeah. In in what uh, what format? How do you like to eat it? Uh, anything, honestly. Like when... Um, <laughs> When it's corn season, uh, I just become very happy. Honestly, I, I need corn in every aspect, just like you know, roasted, sauteed, um, steamed, whatever. Do you have a, a place that you like to get corn from? The, is there like a, a... Honestly, I'll just buy a couple of years and cook it up at home. <laughs> um, if you could master any skill overnight, what would it be? Master a skill? Um, I would probably learn to speak another language fluently. Uh, I, I, I do speak a couple languages. Um, what languages like, do you speak? Uh, well, there's my language of Urdu, um, which is the language of, uh, of Pakistan and um, also French, but I'm not fluent enough in, in them. So I would probably learn another language fluently so I can communicate a little bit better. One of those two or a, a, a third language? Uh, I honestly don't know yet. Yeah. I'll look into that. <laughs> is there a, a topic, something you'd want to talk about with somebody? Well, it's more or? so just because um, I want to be able to communicate better with people. You know, they, there's a, it, like if someone does not know English, you know, especially being a chef, like, you know, you just kind of point and, and direct them and just be like, hey, do that type thing. But, yeah. you know, I, I would want to be able to communicate them with them more effectively or even just ask how their day is going. Yeah. 
one of the things that I found really striking when I first started working in restaurants was how the language of kitchens really is Spanish, especially, no. you know, other than the, the very top echelon of restaurants, most restaurants, at least in New York City, are are entirely staffed by mm -hmm. often undocumented immigrants from yep. Mexico and Central America. And, and that if you don't speak Spanish, you're going to have a lot of trouble yeah. <laughs> communicating. A lot of with people make colleagues. fun of me for a lot of people made fun of me for years because I was the only New York city manager that did not know Spanish. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, like if I could do something overnight, that it would probably be learned another language. Okay. If you could, uh, get on a plane tomorrow and travel anywhere in the world, where would it be? If I could go anywhere, uh, I would probably pick Japan. Have you been before? I have not. What, have not. uh, what is it? Just, about uh, anytime, uh, anytime I see, like a picture of like the architecture of the, of the food, of the scenery, everything's just it just seems so so serene, you know. And uh, I just want to go there and hang out. Yeah. Um, what do you cook for yourself or for your girlfriend at at home? What are your go to meals? We're very low key. Uh, like we don't really want to spend a lot of time on uh, dishes and, and and making gourmet meals and everything like that. So as long as it's Honestly, if, when we're cooking at home, like we want to cook healthy, but uh, as long as it's quick and clean and, um, you know, it doesn't take too much of our time because for us, what's more important is actually spending time with each other. And we don't, um, you know, we, we don't want to fuss over, you know, just having, you know, five courses or whatever like that. Like, you know, as long as it's like a quick pasta or whatever it could be, then we'll do that. <laughs> uh, what did you eat? Growing up as a kid, what were your your school lunches like? What did what did you eat at home? So I grew up in Staten Island and uh, very high um, Italian community out there. So for me, it was a lot of pasta and a lot of pizza around. Uh, for school lunches, it was honestly like I, I was the kid that brought a lot of bag bag lunches to school. So it was uh, a lot of cold cuts and tuna sandwiches and things like that. Hmm. Um, I know you're in the process of of fundraising, looking mm -hmm. for donors, supporters. Um, is there a way that our listeners can, can support your work at Restaurant Without? Yes. Uh, so Without anybody that wants to reach out to me, you can reach out to, to, to me on social media. Uh, you can also go to the website restaurantafterhours.org. Uh, we also have a donate button on the website if anybody wants to donate that way. And, um, you know, yeah, like any type of support would be great. Like uh, we're, um, we're in a fundraising push right now to raise money for future programs. And uh, hopefully by the fall or early next year, we will be able to provide accessible counseling to people. Um, are you are you looking to connect with uh, particular people within the industry, managers, chefs? Um? Yeah, like uh, right now, I'm um, I'm trying to go from restaurant to restaurant and, and promote mental health first aid. So if anybody's out there that uh, wants me to come and talk to the staff, and I will happily do so. Uh, and um, where can people? How can people reach you? Oh, uh, they can reach out to me um, via social media. We maybe What's your, we'll we'll put a link on the, yeah, on the site, a, but but we'll say it anyway, just uh, if anyone. So listening. my name is Zia Shake, uh, and I'm uh, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, we'll put the link up on the website uh, so people can find me that way. I don't actually have a restaurant after hours uh, social media yet, just because it's still too early. But uh, yeah, we'll put the link up, and they can reach out to me that way. Great, Zia, thank you so much for joining us. This is our our last episode of the season, so thank you all of our Thank you for listeners for hanging out with us. Uh, we'll be taking a break for a few weeks um, and coming back uh, in May with some great new guests and some interesting new topics. And as always, we love feedback, suggestions, comments, uh, 
nominations, anyone who you'd like to see on the show, get in touch with us. Our email address is whyfood at heritageradionetwork.org. You can also reach us on social media. We're at whyfoodpodcast on Instagram and Facebook. Um, you can also reach me on social media via my spice company at burlap and barrel or email me at ethan at burlap and barrel.com. Um, thanks to our awesome engineer, Amanda, who's pulling the strings behind the window and, uh, to the red crickets for our theme song blind. And thanks. And, uh, see you in a few weeks. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.